Good morning. Welcome again to Callaway Baptist Church. The title of the sermon is Dream On. Dream On. Keep dreaming. And uh, I tell you, as we've been getting into the book of Daniel, it's been a really, really, uh, I've just, I'm, I'm learning so much. I learn so much every time I go through these uh, various studies and books, and I hope the same is true for you. Uh, we had really big stuff happen in Kahului this week. Anybody know what it is? Jolly Bee opened. Jolly Bee. I know many of you are perhaps excited about that. Uh, I'm not so much excited about Jolly Bee as what it is a prelude to Chick fil A. Chick fil A coming to town. The Lord has heard our prayers and has brought these things to us. Uh, but welcome, if it's your first time, uh, to Kahului Baptist Church. We are working our way into the book of Daniel, into the book of Daniel. We're going to go all the way through it. Uh, we're going to cover the first six chapters before or up into Easter, and then we will jump back into it in September. We will back, uh, we'll cover the last half with all the dreams and visions and fun stuff in September. Last week we finished chapter one, and as we work more into the book, you're going to find even more intricacies in how the book is structured and how it's laid out. For instance, today's text, chapter two, verse four, there's a shift in the text. There's a shift in the text itself when it says, they answered him in Aramaic. From chapter 2, verse 4, till the end of chapter 7, to the very end, that whole block of chapters. Think how much is in there. There's a lot there. That whole block of chapters is not written in Hebrew, like the rest of Daniel. It's written in Aramaic. Huh. Isn't that fascinating? The whole thing, chapter 2, 4, to 7, to the end of chapter 7, uh, all written in Aramaic. Now, what is the significance of that? That makes you have to ask, why would that happen? So chapter 1 is in Hebrew, and then he gets to chapter 2, verse 4, all Aramaic. Then at chapter 8, he goes back to Hebrew. What's going on? What's going on? What's the significance of these things? What would be the point of recording this massive section in Aramaic and then switching back? Here's the point to make this portion accessible to all peoples. See, Aramaic was the national trade language, the international trade language of the day. In that day, you wouldn't speak like today, for instance, you might go around the world and the international trade language would be English in most parts of the world. English, that's going to be your international trade language. And Daniel, in his day, it wasn't Hebrew, it wasn't Persian, it was Aramaic. That was the international trade language. And why would he write this section in Aramaic? The reason is because these teachings pertain to God's global purposes for all peoples and all nations and all languages, not just the Jews. You see, I've said many times, and I'll continue to point out as we come across it in the scriptures, the Gentiles are not an afterthought in God's plan of salvation. 
The Gentiles are not a mystery only revealed in the New Testament because Israel rejected their king. That is not the message of the Scriptures. The Gentiles have been a part of the plan since the beginning, and we see it again and again and again, and we see it here. God has a message for the nations in the book of Daniel. He has a message for all, and he wants all to hear that message. So that's just one of the interesting things in the structure of the book. And now you say, well, why did he switch back to Hebrew in chapter 8? Well, we'll get to that because that deals very specifically with God's plan for Israel and his people and how they will play out in his plan of redemption. So there's a lot of things which we'll talk about as we come up to them. Last thing I want to say by way of introduction, in our time through Daniel, I want to instill a Godward focus. And so so if you're here and you're just joining us, or maybe you've only been a member a short period of time or, or whatever it is, uh, when a pastor preaches in any church, he is not just distilling information. He is and should be teaching you how to read God's Word for yourself as well. He should be teaching you a sound pattern of how to handle the Scriptures as well. And so one of the things, as I preach through this, is I've been trying to instill a God-word focus into how we read the text and ultimately apply it. For instance, last week we saw the Daniel plan and the Daniel fast and how that plays out and, and the dangers of reading the text and making it about us. The book of Daniel is not about us. It's not even about Daniel. Who's it about? It's about God sustaining his covenant people in exile. That's what it's about. It's not about how awesome Daniel is. Remember the, the, the repeated phrase in chapter 1, and God gave, and God gave. It's all about God, you see. But when we primarily read the text and make it about us, oh, David and Goliath, this is one all the time. God has the Goliath in your path to find the David inside of you. That is just psycho psychological rubbish. That's what that is. That is not how you read the Bible. That is not the point of that passage. So, as I preach, I hope to instill a Godward focus in the text. Nine out of ten times, as you're reading a narrative, you are not meant to mainly identify with the hero. Nine times out of ten, I'll say always, there's a very few exceptions. Nine times out of ten, you are not mainly meant to identify yourself with the hero. Oh, okay, I want to be David, I want to be Daniel, I want to be Joseph, I want to be Job, I want to be, right, whoever the hero is, it is nine times out of ten not a one-to-one -one correspondence, you for them. Most often, we are meant to identify with the villain or the one who needs rescue. Most often, that is our one-to-one. -one. You are not David. Do you know who you are? You are not Goliath. <laughs> you are cowering Israel with no champion, no hope facing certain death and enslavement. That's your one-to-one -one correspondence. And nine times out of ten, the one-to-one -one correspondence with the hero is Jesus in shadow. David is not you. 
David foreshadows the greater king who would come of little, you see? And he just, who would go out and fight the giant that we never could for ourselves. And his victory by faith becomes our victory, you see? It's not about finding the David inside of you. It's about looking to the true and greater David and finding all your hope, all your victory, all your strength in him. That's the way it plays out. We could do this all day long. So, when you read a narrative of this type, the one-to-one correspondence is almost always Jesus. The only way that you correspond with the hero is through identification with a mediator. Only in Jesus do you identify with the hero. And that makes all the difference in how you read a text. That makes all the difference in how you apply a text. That makes all the difference in how you walk it out day to day. Now, having said that, I'm trying to issue correctives. I don't want a pendulum swing too far to the other way either. You see? It would be a mistake then to say, well, I learned nothing from Daniel. (laughs) I shouldn't learn anything from David. You see? It would be a mistake to pendulum swing too far the other way also. Often, when you come to a historical narrative like we have before us, Daniel, or you can think of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, perhaps Acts, and other narratives, how many lessons there are depends on how many main characters are in that text. So the amount of lessons you have to draw from, what God is trying to teach you, in part depends on how many characters there are in the text. You're meant to learn something from Nebuchadnezzar. You're meant to learn something from his wise men. You're meant to learn something from Daniel, yes. You see, generally how many main characters there are will dictate the fullness and richness of what God intends to convey to his people in exile. So, I hope to zoom in. What we're going to do is a little bit different than how we've done these things in the past uh, with various narratives and because I think it's, it's good, and I know Nick gets scared every time I get close to the edge, I'm going to fall off, but uh, I, I, do, I hope not to do so, but in any case, he'll be up to preach if I do while I'm recovering. <laughs> uh, so we're going to do this a little bit different. Every narrative follows an arc, uh, an, a full story arc. So you have plot, char- or setting, and characters, and then you're rising tension in the text. Ooh, the wise men, can they interpret the dream? And then it goes on, and it keeps going up until a climax, a boiling point. What's going to happen? Will Daniel be able to interpret the dream, or will all the wise men die, right? And, and, then, and then a resolution and following action. Now, the whole section of this text encompasses the whole chapter. So if I was going to preach to get the whole big picture point, we would do the whole chapter in one sermon. We've done that before. I hope you trust I can handle that whole thing in one chunk, and we can do it. However, I wouldn't have a ton of time to tease out all the other subpoints, subplots either. So I've broken this text, and what we're going to do with Daniel from here on, I've broken it up a little bit, and we're going to examine each component of that narrative arc. So we're going to take a sermon and look at the rising conflict. We're going to take a, a sermon and look at 
or, or the plot and the, char the characters and the setting, and then another one for the rising conflict, and then another one for the climax, and then another one, you see, for the following action. So we're going to break it up like that, hopefully to spend a little more time teasing out some stuff that maybe, I hope, will be profitable for us. So to that end, let's pray. Father in heaven, as our fighter verse says, we want to lift up our eyes to the hills. From where does our help come? It comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And Father, as we see a king who sleeps in Nebuchadnezzar and whose sleep flees him, may we lift up our eyes to see you, the true king, the creator, the ruler, the sovereign. You never sleep and you never slumber. You are always ruling and reigning so that we may rest. And I pray this morning, as some are tired, some are stressed from their work week, that you would nourish their souls by your word and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's your big idea for this portion of the text. Here's your big idea. Worldly wisdom is insufficient to give you answers or bring you peace. It's your big idea. Worldly wisdom is insufficient to give you answers or bring you peace. That's what we're going to see in our time together. I have three points. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar's trouble. Nebuchadnezzar's trouble. Nebuchadnezzar's test. Nebuchadnezzar's test and Daniel's tact. So we're going to look through this passage with those three points. Nebuchadnezzar's trouble, his test, and Daniel's tact. Verse 1 through 3, we find Nebuchadnezzar's trouble. I have to say I identify with Nebuchadnezzar as of late because I have been disturbed in my sleep as of late. On more than one occasion, I've been disturbed and my sleep has fled from me. I got assaulted the other night in my sleep. As I was there resting in peace, I suddenly felt a sharp, strong jab to my chest. It startled me awake. It was my wife. Isn't that awful? She assaults me in my sleep. It's terrible. She said I was snoring, but I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything. But it is not fun to be jolted awake, no matter how you are jolted awake at night. And Nebuchadnezzar found himself troubled in his sleep. He says he was alarmed and sleep fled from him. Now here you have the most powerful man in the world. His kingdom stretched to the utter, in, uh, utter fringes of the known world at the time. Babylonian maps uh, are some of the earliest, actually the earliest maps from that era that we have of any kind. And they show the Babylonian kingdom just reaches to the ends of all things. The most powerful man literally in the world. He has everything he could want at his hands, at his fingers to, to help him, and he is unable to sleep. How frustrating would that be to have everything but a peaceful night's rest? Insomnia or lack of sleep, or the inability to rest can drive a person mad. Ask any newborn, parent of a newborn. The inability to rest can absolutely drive you mad. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to search in vain, in all the wrong places, to find peace. 
And so he has a series of dreams. He's got, and we're told this is a number of dreams. It's not just one time. It's a recurring dream. And what we're going to find is God is giving to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, here would be a mistake to say, wow, I have recurring dreams. I have nightmares. I wonder if I should get them interpreted from somebody. That is not the point of this passage. Not all of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams were interpreted by Daniel. God was speaking to him in a very distinctive way in this time. That is not his normative way. We'll talk more about that because there's a lot of dreams in Daniel. So, but this would be a wrong application of this passage. But Nebuchadnezzar's here. God is giving him a message to this pagan king, and it is alarming him. He's got this recurring dream, and so he summons all the king's horses and all the king's men, all the wise men of Babylon, to stand before him to try to help him. So we see Nebuchadnezzar's trouble. Number two, Nebuchadnezzar's test. Nebuchadnezzar's test, verse 4 through 12. And check this out. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, so the king says, I had a dream, now I want to know the dream. My spirit's troubled to know the meaning of this dream. The Chaldeans answer in four, verse 4. Note the irony of their answer. O king, live what? Forever. Wait a second. The end of chapter 1 left Daniel. Remember, Daniel remained until the Persians ruled. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to live forever. The whole point of his dream is that you are not going to live forever, Nebuchadnezzar. This is irony at its best. Oh, king, live forever. But that's what they say, because that's what you say to a king, because if you don't, you're going to, right? He says, they say, tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. So, the Babylonians, here's the king. These wise men, the conjurers, the magicians, the sorcerers, here they go. They, they say, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you had a dream. It's, ter it's, ter it's troubling you. You're terrified. Tell us a dream. We'll tell you the interpretation. The king, ironically, unexpectedly, says, absolutely not. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. In other words, he's saying, make no mistake about it. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time. Do you answer a king a second time? No. You just... You better start conjuring something. But they do. They venture. Why? Because they don't have an answer. They can't, they can't pull this over on him. So they answer the king a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants a dream and we'll show you the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know you're just trying to buy time. Basically, you don't know. I know you're trying to buy time from me. Because you see that the word from me is firm. Verse 9, if you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. So see, the king doesn't trust his own cabinet. He doesn't trust the wise men in his, because you see, it makes sense. You tell me the dream, and I'll tell you what it means. But who is there to say that you know exactly what that means? How do I know you're not just making it up? 
You see? That's the king's concern. Can you really? And so he says, if you can tell me the dream, then I'll know you can tell me what it means. Otherwise, you're all going to die. And this was not an empty threat. Later on, this king would gouge out the eyes of King Zedekiah. He would pluck them out and make him walk in shame. He was not bluffing. He would do exactly what he said. Tell me the dream or you're all dead. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great, and oh, we'll get there in a second, no great and powerful king has asked any such thing of an enchanter, of an enchanter a magician, or a Chaldean. Now, here's the test. Now, it's important to know the Babylonians were very, very systematic in their interpretation of dreams. They had whole manuals that they would walk through, and so they would log all these different dreams of different types of people, of different castes of society, and so if you had this type of dream, and you were this type of person, and they would kind of track your life over the years, and this happened to you, they would log that dream and the outcome, and they had all these different manuals. They had whole books full of these things, libraries even, and so you would come, tell them your dream. They'd consult, consult their manual. Oh, the most common dreams in the U.S. are uh, falling, falling, running from a- attackers, uh, waking up naked, and being late for a test, right? These are, right? Oh, these are the, this is what it means, da 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 right? And so that's what they would do. They would consult their manuals, and then they would tell you what it means. Now, as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think, like, this sounds like something else in our culture. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He goes to his experts. He, they want him to tell him the dream, and they'll look up in their manual to see what it means. But the thing is, is they don't really know. It's enough to fool the uneducated person. It's enough to give an answer, but they don't know. This sounds like something else. I'm going to ruffle some feathers. And I didn't know what that meant until I got chickens. And when you get them all upset, they literally ruffle their feathers. And... They look all discombobulated and like they got thrown into a washer machine. So I'm going to ruffle some feathers and maybe discombobulate some of you for the glory of God. This sounds like something else in our culture that we need to talk about. See, we go to the wise men of our culture. You tell them your symptoms. They look in their manual and they try to tell you what's wrong with you. Then they send you home with a prescription You go home thinking it will help, only to find in time you have little to no peace. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the whole system of psychology and psychiatry. Talking about the whole system, the whole thing. See, you go to them and you tell them, I'm feeling anxious, I can't sleep, I don't know why my heart races. You're giving them symptoms. Or I feel sad, I don't know why. You're giving them symptoms. And they will go to their manual. Do you know what it's called? It's called the DSM-5 now. It's the fifth iteration. The manual changes, by the way, along with the symptoms and the diagnosis, because it's the wisdom of men. It changes. Homosexuality was once considered a disorder in the original DSM. 
Now, homophobia is a disorder. You see? It's very different. It changes. It's the wisdom of men. You go to them, they consult their manual, the DSM, that has a list of symptoms, and then they diagnose you with a label. They will then prescribe you a medication which they have no clue how it works, or if it works. And you will go home, and you will take it, only to, in time, find you have little to no peace. Perhaps it'll help symptoms subside for a while, but it will not give you the answers you need. Now you say, you say that, Pastor, can you back it up? I absolutely, 120% can back it up. But don't take it from me. Take it from themselves. Here, I'm going to quote to you Dr. Alan Francis. Alan Francis is the former chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University. So, here's a secular university. This is not a Christian organization. This is a secular university. He is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry decades in the field. He also served as the chairman for the DSM-IV, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, fourth iteration. He was the chairman of that. He wrote several of the diagnoses in that manual. Check out what he says, not mine, in his book. He's, he's talking about the DSM's efforts to define what's wrong with people. He says, I quote, I have reviewed dozens of definitions of mental disorder and have written one myself in the DSM-IV and find none of them the slightest bit helpful either in determining which conditions should be considered mental disorders and which not, or in deciding who is sick and who is not. Close quote. We go on with this. It's a good book. Fascinating. He says, I'm looking, they're trying to define a disorder. They're trying to de determine what makes this a disorder versus not a disorder. And he says none of the definitions, including the one I've written, are in the slightest bit helpful to determine whether something's actually even wrong with anybody. Because they define it, what is outside the realm of normalcy? Well, you try to define normal. You see? So he's bemoaning his own work in the DSM-IV. Let me quote another practicing psychiatrist. And he's talking now about the medication he prescribes, in this case, Zoloft. He says this, I quote, Despite my training at Harvard's Massachusetts General Hospital, so here we are, his training, Harvard, Massachusetts General Hospital. Despite my training, I have no idea, and he, he's using Lexapro now, uh, he's talking about Lexapro here, I have no idea how Lexapro works to relieve depression nor does any other psychiatrist. The term, this is his quotes, the term chemical imbalance is commonly used by lay people as a shorthand explanation for mental illness. It is a convenient myth. That's what he's saying, not me. It is a convenient myth because it destigmatizes their condition. Psychiatrists go along with this shorthand because it gives us something to say when patients asks, uh, ask us questions about pathophysiology. After all, no doctor wants to admit ignorance about the very problems he or she is trained to manage." Close quote. Close quote. And when he says that term pathophysiology, what he's saying is, when you go to these doctors, 
It's not like another condition like cancer. I can draw blood. Tests will be run. They are scientifically, empirically verified tests that will show you you have cancer. That's not the way these things are diagnosed. It is all, let's consult the manual, 100%. And this is what he's saying. It's a convenient myth, his words. Not substantiated. What's happening now is because new research is coming out. The top dogs, uh, the uh, American Psychological Association, all these other associations are now saying, oh yeah, we were wrong about the chemical imbalance thing. It's not been, it's not been shown. They're all saying that. It hasn't trickled down to Kaiser yet, but it will, mark my words. What we also don't realize is in the world of psychology and psychiatry, there are more than 300. We think, oh, well, they're all more or less kind of the same. No, there are more than 300 schools of thought of which they are counseling out of that. Far be it from us to think there is one unified central truth organization. No. We need to know the answers the world has been peddling around. And for too long, Christian people, God's people, have gone to the experts, to the professionals, seeking peace without considering their foundations. I am not telling you, disclaimer, to go home and stop taking your medication. I'm not telling you to do that. I would not counsel that. Do not do that. That would be bad. I'm not saying to go against what your doctor says. I am not a medical physician or a doctor, nor do I claim to be. But I am giving you quotes from those who are. It is worth considering the foundations of who we are receiving counsel from. All I want to do is level the playing field. The wise men of the world without the scriptures have no more ability to grant relief to tormented souls or tormented minds than these Chaldeans had the ability to help their king. And as Tom Hanks' character Forrest Gump said, that's all I have got to say about that for now. For now, consider the foundations of where we seek counsel from. I would suggest to you the scriptures are sufficient. God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him by his word and his promises. It is not as simple the scripture a day keeps Satan away. You can't pray away the hardships. That's not what we're talking about here. But the scriptures do offer a comprehensive help to the problems of man. Not exhaustive, but comprehensive. And so we champion the scriptures. Sola Scriptura. Come to them for life. And you will find they will not fail you. So, Nebuchadnezzar issues a test. Tell me the dream and its interpretation, and I'll know I can trust your word. Otherwise, you will die. So, the story goes on. They answer a third time, and it gets really bad. Sometimes when you give an answer, sometimes people lay barbs in their answer. Landmine, so to speak. This is what they do. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. Verse 10. And here, here's the barb. You hear it? 
For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. You see the barb there? Nebuchadnezzar, no great king asks these types of things of their people. What's the implication? You are not great. You are not powerful. This explains why Nebuchadnezzar does what he does in the very next verse. Verse 11. The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the king, or so the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied, replied with prudence and discretion, to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And Arioch begins to tell him all that has transpired. So number three, we see Daniel's tact. Daniel's tact and the rest of the passage, verse 13 and following. At the very least, on a side note, we can note what this passage teaches us. Many would say this passage teaches us that Satan or demonic forces in all of their power cannot read your mind. Satan is not omniscient, nor are his people. They cannot read your heart or your mind. They can see your actions. They can follow your patterns. First Chronicles 28.9 records David's uh, Talking to Solomon, you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. And check this out. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Only God is omniscient. Only God searches the heart and mind. So at the very least, that's another point we will see in this element or in this passage. But we move on to Daniel's tact. Now, it's interesting that Daniel wasn't with the first group. Now, why is that? Why wasn't Daniel there in the beginning? Because we saw in chapter 1, his knowledge was 10 times more than all the other wise men. So why wasn't Daniel there in the beginning? Well, in the very first verse, we saw this was in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Uh, I won't get into the timing of to why it's like this. It has to do with Babylonian timing and Hebrew timing. But bottom line, Daniel would have been right at the end of his training or had just graduated. He was either at the end of his training in the University of Babylon, or he had just graduated. He was a rookie. He was still in his FTO, in his training period. He, he, didn't, he hadn't been tested yet, and so Nebuchadnezzar calls the standing wise men. He calls the standing ones, and Daniel and his friends apparently were left out of that. But he eventually gives a decree captain of the guard goes to execute all the wise men, and I just find this fascinating. He comes to Daniel with orders to kill him, and Daniel appears from the text calm and collected. He doesn't go into a fit of rage. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't mock the king as the others did. That guy, no king asks that. That's foolish. We can't do that. What's wrong with him? He didn't do that. He doesn't fall down in a fainting fit either. Oh, 
Oh. Right? Some people are fighters. Some are fleers. Some run. And then some are fainters. Which are you, right? right? So uh, he doesn't freeze or faint, and, and he doesn't run. He's not paralyzed by fear. He displays calm, composure, and he does what more of us need to learn to do. What is that? He asks a question from a heart anchored in God's purposes. He asks a question from a heart that is anchored in the purpose of God. Daniel demonstrated the truth of Ecclesiastes 10, verse 4. This is what it says. Ecclesiastes 10, 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Some of us would do well to learn this. When you encounter anger, frustration, rage from your boss, maybe, spouse, family member, calmness goes much further than responding in anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You see? Calmness goes much further with frustration or responding in frustration and shortness. The New Testament equivalent of this, one of them would be do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Daniel also did something more of us need to do when we hear bad news. He asked questions, didn't he? Why is the king's matter so urgent? Where is the urgency in this matter? He asks questions, gets more information, searches the thing out, and then finally he responds with an incredible response of faith. He tells, he requests an appointment of the king, and he says, give me a time and I'll show you the interpretation. Give me a time and I'll show you the interpretation. Now at that moment, Daniel did not have a clue what the dream was or what its meaning was. So he goes out in faith and Ask the king, tell me a time, I'll come into you and give you the dream and its interpretation. What incredible faith. How is it that Daniel could do that? Here's how. Daniel, without a doubt, looked back on how God had provided for him and his friends in the past. You remember chapter 1? How did God provide for him? He took him away. He said, 10-day test. I'll eat vegetables and water for 10 days and you can see and it says God gave Daniel favor and his friends it says God gave Daniel wisdom and learning and insight you see he looked back on how God had provided for him already and in confidence acted in the present with a hope to the future he looked back on God's faithfulness for help in the present and his future crisis. Now, next week, we're going to see how this all plays out, but let's close with two points of application from this. Two points, we'll close. First one, Kahului Baptist, beloved, just as Daniel looks back to God's provision, he looks to the past to see how God acted for his 
people. He looked back to see how God provided for strength to trust in God in the present. Beloved, we also look back at God's provision. Where do we look? We don't look back to 2019. We don't look back to 2016. We keep rewinding that tape all the way back to the cross of Christ. We look back where God provided ultimate salvation, ultimate provision, ultimate sacrifice in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our present crisis, our present trouble. This is how Paul encourages us in Romans 8. You remember what he says? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? You see? He said, God, what do you need today? You need strength? You need sleep? You, you need wisdom because you have relational conflict? Are you, are you far from your family? Do you need help? Are you sorrowful? Are you grieving the loss of a loved one? Do you need comfort? Do you need protection? Do you need provision? What do you need? Look around. Do you doubt that God would provide such a thing? If he gave his only son, he sacrificed. He sent Jesus. What more could he give? What more hope or answer do you need to know that God will provide for everything else you need? You see, this is how Paul encourages us. Look back and you will find into his word, in his spirit, you will find ample strength to obey God in the present. Don't give up on God. Wait for the Lord. Wait, I say, wait for Him. He will provide. Number two, all of us in some way are like Nebuchadnezzar. In some way, we're all like Nebuchadnezzar. See, all of us have been given a vision of the end that should terrify us and keep us awake at night. All of us have been given that vision. It's around us all the time. We flee from it. We try to ignore it. We try not to think about it, actually. Every funeral tells us what we all know is coming. We don't even like to call them funerals. We call them celebration of life. Why? Because we're trying to ignore what is stamped in creation. This vision should terrify us. What, is it, what am I talking about? Judgment day is coming. A day of reckoning is coming. That's what terrified Nebuchadnezzar in part. We'll talk more about his dream. But in part, what terrified him is the end would come and I will give an account. That vision alone should terrify us. Every thought, every word, every deed will give an account to the King of Kings. You see? And there is no man on earth, as the Chaldeans said, they were right. There is no man on earth who can give an answer or to bring peace to what we all know is coming. No man. Or should I say, no mere man. 
but the God-man. See, Jesus Christ was God's man. He was not just a man. He was the one of whom it is said, the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. See, they were right that no man could give an answer. But what they were wrong is that the God whose dwelling is not with flesh because this God, Daniel's God, had a plan to do exactly that thing, to dwell in the flesh. See, no man can bring you peace but the God-man. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus dwelt in the flesh. Jesus is our true and greater Daniel, who doesn't just reveal dreams. Jesus doesn't just give messages from God. He is the message from God. He is the eternal Logos, the Word made flesh who dwelt among us, the divine Word of God, and in Christ we have redemption. In Christ we have forgiveness. In Christ we have hope. In him we have life. And only in Jesus will we find peace for our troubled souls. Now we're about to sing this song, and I hope you sing it in light of all you just heard with all your heart. Here's what it says, this line towards the end, be still my soul and know this peace. Know this peace. The merits of your great high priest have bought your liberty. Rely then on his precious blood. Don't fear your banishment from God since Jesus sets you free. I hope you'll trust in Jesus today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, grant that if we are fearful that you are for us, if we are wondering, is there wisdom in the world that can help us, is your word enough, that we would look back to the cross of Christ and see our Redeemer, see that by his stripes, by his stripes, we are healed. And would you turn us to him? And Father, if there are any here who have never trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, maybe there are some here who find their soul is troubled no matter where they turn. They just can't seem to find peace. Today, may they come to Christ, who is our peace. And would they trust in him? And would you build your church here and across all of Maui? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.